This is a special edition of Dolphin Financial Radio. In this podcast, host Dan Wendell brings in a legal expert to discuss issues surrounding estate planning in retirement. As a fiduciary and investment advisor focused on retirement planning, Dan appreciates the importance of having certain legal aspects of your financial life in order. This is why he has invited Debbie Faulkner to join him on a series of estate planning focused podcasts. Debbie is an estate planning business attorney and owner of Burke Faulkner Law Firm in Oldsmar, Florida. She grew up in Palm Harbor, Florida, and has been a lawyer for over a decade. Debbie went to Cornell Law School and obtained her advanced law degree in taxation with a focus on family wealth planning. As a tax lawyer, she is able to integrate tax planning into her estate work. Now, let's begin one of several estate planning-focused conversations on Dolphin Financial Radio. Hello and welcome to another Dolphin Financial Radio show with me, Dan Wendell, owner of the Dolphin Financial Group. We're doing a special show. As you realize today, Debbie Faulkner is back. She's back in studio and she is going to talk to us more specifically about some legal issues, estate planning that retirees in particular, not just retirees, but a lot of people are facing. So last time, Debbie, we talked about the difference between trusts and wills and the importance of different documentation. I want to take it a step further and talk more specifically about some of the issues that I see people coming to me with. Sure. And um, as a father of three boys, I want to start with children. Um, We talked about how a trust is a great way to help out if you have a, well, I'll call it a black sheep in the family, perhaps, (laughs) uh, or a special needs child, someone that you want to, hey, I I don't want them to have a bulk bulk of money because it'll either they'll lose federal benefits, state benefits, or they'll just blow it all at the casino. (laughs) So we talked about how a trust might be good for that. Talk to me about other other things to worry about when you there's minor children involved and first of all what is a minor child and what is the age in florida is it 18 or 21 sure um, a minor child in florida is 18 but you can define what you want a minor child to be in your own trust document if you create a trust you could say i want these minor child provisions to apply until they're 25 if you think you you would like that okay um essentially though your question is about uh, minor children and how to provide for them so that's another situation where i highly recommend using a trust, but here's why. It's not just, you know, just because a trust is a little bit more complicated. When you have minor children, if you're not here to parent them, most parents view that as their most important job in their life is how and how they parent and, and how they're going to raise their children. In a trust, while it governs just property, finances, money, you can essentially have your trustee who does not have to be the same person as the guardian of your children. If you want there to be a check and balance in place, you can tell your trustee exactly what you want the money to be spent on for your children. For example, you can say, while they're minors under the age of 18, I'd like for their money to be spent primarily on their education to the extent that it exceeds X amount of dollars for their support needs. Or I want their money to be spent on their health, education, maintenance, and support, but I want the money to be primarily be preserved for their post-secondary education. Or I want um, you know, the trustee to... I want them to spend money on extracurricular activities because because me and my wife or me and my husband or, you know, we, we value extracurricular activities and having a well-rounded child. Or maybe you have a child who's competitive in a specific sport or, or uh, 
something like dance, you may say, I, I want that to be preserved for the entire remainder of their, of their childhood, things like that. You can be very specific or very general about how money is spent on your children while they're minors. What about grandchildren? So in a lot of my situations, people are retiring. They have money they want to leave for their grandkids. So they, there's certain, you know, 529 plans you can actually designate for college. But what if they have, like you said, my granddaughter's really great at dance. I want to leave this money to her. What can they do to prevent their own kids, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps their daughter's daughter from just take or their daughter from taking the money and saying, yeah, I'll give it to dance. Yeah, whatever. And then they go and buy a new car. Like, is there a way for grandparents to kind of skip a generation? And, and is there a problem giving someone under 18 money? So there, there, those are great questions. There's no problem giving people under 18 money in a sense, but they obviously need to have a person over 18 in charge of that money. Uh, so the easiest and best way to avoid having any issues with the money being spent exactly as the grandparents want is to set up a trust for the grandchildren, but have a third party trustee that's not their son or daughter in charge of that money. And typically, Dan, no matter who you're leaving money to, I recommend, unless you want the beneficiary to have full control over the money right away without any restriction, I always recommend having a third party trustee. And there are companies called trust companies that are specifically their whole job is to administer these trusts after death. And one of the more routine questions I get, well, is, well, how much does that cost? Yeah. And the reality is, you know, a trustee, a trust company is supposed to earn their own fee by managing the money and assets like a financial advisor would. And there are companies out there that allow you to keep your financial advisor that you already feel comfortable with, like you, Dan, and be, and then the trust company just follows the directions. For example, they will say, oh, okay, is this an educational need that the, you know, grandparent wanted this money to be spent on or is it not? And they say yes or no to those requests from the beneficiaries, from the people, from the grandkids. But they don't, that their whole job is to follow those directions. And then the advisor's job is to be able to, you know, keep that that trust money earning money so that it pays the 1% to 3% fee that the trustees charge. I'm glad you brought that up because it's a very, very common question I get for people that, uh, my clients, uh, uh, what happens when I die? I want, I don't want my kids to have the money right away. They're, they, you know, whatever it is. And we're talking 50 year old kids too, you know, that's right. Oh, <laughs> and, very uh, common. And so, or they want to leave to the grandkids. So they say, Dan, can you, I trust you. Can you make sure that she gets this at this age when she buys her first house? I can't, I can't do that. I don't have right. that authority, but they want me to. And, that's right. And so you're talking about having the executor mm-hmm. or being a third party. That's right. Uh, a trustee, I should say. That's right. Being a third party. Um, but they could theoretically have a third party, but have someone else continue to manage the money or a new person manage the money and have a separate person that's distributing the money. That's right. It provides a good check and balance. And I mean, you, the person who's writing the trust already likely has a strong relationship with their financial planner. So there are trust companies that exist out there that allow your family to have the same advisor that you know and trust for managing the money. And the trust company's job is to administer the directions. So their, their whole job is to be a third party neutral. And the reason I recommend this over a family member is actually quite obvious. I don't know if any of our listeners have siblings, but typically siblings, you know, can't even agree as if the sun is out or the sky is blue or the sky is gray, you know, it, 
and, and the same thing goes with children. None of us want to go to our sibling and ask for a discretionary distribution, which is like basically asking them, can I please have money for this or that? And if the trust is set up for to take care of health issues and education or other issues, you know, you don't want to have to maybe disclose your health problem to your sibling or a family member. It may be very personal in nature. Whereas a neutral third party is going to read those directions. They have, they have fiduciary responsibility. They can be sued if they, if they are not following your directions to the T by the beneficiaries themselves. And they also, you can write provisions in there that they can be fired under different situations. But I really like the idea. And I always advise my clients to have someone outside the family. And, and it's just like, you know, having a, an adequate and intelligent financial advisor, their whole job is to review the market, to know what's out there, to help you to grow your, your wealth. Um, you know, these are professionals that charge a small fee, but I, I really feel on all situations that that fee is well worth, worth, uh, well worth it. The juice is definitely worth the squeeze. Well, yeah, I think it just getting that emotionless or getting the emotions out of this decision-making is very helpful. Um, and the drama that I see happen when my clients die between the, the children, uh, oh, mom wouldn't want that. No way. And I'm there saying, no, this is what we said. This is what she had. Um, it's amazing. It never fails that there's always someone that's not happy with the outcome. I think a third party is a good idea. Now, if you have, if you have, um, a child that you totally trust and you don't want to go to a third party, can you name the, um, your daughter, for instance, as the trustee to take care of your grandkids in the way that you want, or, or would the daughter be able to supersede that once you pass? You can always name your family members in any capacity that you want. You can put your family members in charge of the money for the grandkids. It's just that if the parents are in charge, you know, they can deplete that money. The only person who could sue them is their own child, but not until the child turns 18 years old, which may be way too late for the money to still be there. If the mother or, or your the grand, you know, the intermediary party has bad intentions or they may just have different ideas of what educational needs are, or they may not have exactly the same idea in their mind as the grandparent who's leaving the money. And like I said, like, no matter what, uh, I recommend having a third party as as trust after the person who creates a trust dies, because it's also a very, very, very challenging time for the family when when a parent dies to have to think about legal stuff. And, and you know, you're devastated and you just lost a parent, the closest person to you, most likely, other than maybe a spouse or your children. You know, somebody who's been there your entire life for you, you're now devastated and now you have to think about doing a legal document and doing these legal proceedings. It's just a very challenging time. And I feel, you know, and I see in my practice often the people that come in when they've had this death in the family are devastated. They don't even want any part of, you know, doing all the legal stuff that they're required to do under the law. So there's a lot of reasons I recommend a third party, uh, no matter what. Building on the, and we're going to move away from the grandkids and more about uh, naming a child, um, a typical situation might be someone in their 80s is is becoming it's becoming more difficult to get around or to just manage their own finances. So they might have a couple of kids, but only one lives nearby, and they name the one that's close as a joint account holder on their bank account to make the easy transactions for basic necessities, and also potentially naming their child on the deed of the house. Just 
Um, talk to me about that scenario. What kind of pitfalls to watch out for with that? Absolutely. That's a great question, Dan. So this comes out up so often because we live in Florida. And so um, oftentimes mom or dad names one child on the account. The reality of this situation is that it completely supersedes any estate planning and whatever the will says or the trust says about where that bank account is supposed to go is superseded by the joint account ownership. So you name the child one on the account, child one owns 100% of that bank account at death, no matter what the will says. So there are really, Dan, three situations that avoid or basically supersede or trump, pardon the expression, trump your entire estate plan. Mm -hmm. First is if you have joint ownership of the account. No matter who that joint owner is, they get the account 100% when someone dies. So this is oftentimes I hear from clients, well, my will says it goes three ways, so it's going to go three ways. No. If you're joint owners, it it goes that way and it it avoids, you know, your your will or your trust. Second is what you also mentioned, Dan, is if you are joint owners with right of survivorship on a deed. So if you take your home or a piece of real estate or a piece of dirt and your deed says, you know, I, Debbie Faulkner, own with Dan Wendell, Right with right of survivorship, Dan will own that property as soon as I die, no matter what my will or trust says. Yeah, even if you have kids or a spouse and you name uh, a daughter on as a joint owner on a deed. The daughter will own that property immediately upon my death, as long as the deed has right of survivorship. So wow. there are other deeds that, that are available that do not pass like this, but, but a lot of them, that's how they, they are. And the third way to that basically ruin your estate plan or plan, plan appropriately, depending on whether you're thinking about it is beneficiary designations, Dan, these are critical. And this is where a, a sharp financial advisor can guide you always in the right direction. Beneficiary designations are used on qualified plans, 401ks, uh, 401ks, 403bs, IRAs, um, you know, and, and brokerage accounts really, Mm -hmm. right, Dan? Yeah. And brokerage, just basic stock trading accounts, money market, that kind of stuff. Right. So beneficiary designation is a form that you fill out when you open these accounts, typically that says who you want to receive that account at death. Whatever you write on that form is what will govern who gets the money out of that, uh, out of that account. Now I've seen this go awry. You know, I had one client who had a life insurance policy. So life insurance policies can be owned by a trust, but if they're not, they typically have a beneficiary designation. Well, two generations, you know, passed and nobody received the money yet because it was left to somebody who died, but there was no contingent beneficiary. So as soon as the you know, the person who owned the life insurance policy died, the person they named had also died. So it went to their estate, which means a whole probate proceeding had to be opened for that person who died. And that, that, that person's estate, essentially their probate estate left everything to two other people, one of whom was dead. (laughs) So we had to open two different probate proceedings just to pass that life insurance policy to the rightful owner. But that depletes a lot of the money out of the account that was designed to go a certain way. So 
if you have your beneficiary designations go to a trust, you have in that trust three layers of planning. Like for example, I leave it to my living children. If not, if, if one of them has died, it goes per stirpes, which means to their children who are living. And if not to their children, then their children's children. And if there's none that exists, it goes back up to the first level. For example, it doesn't have to, but back up to whoever survives of the living children. And so that, I mean, that's a really, let's, let's dig deeper into the beneficiary scenarios. I've seen it a lot. A lot of times people will have an ex-spouse listed on an old IRA that they forgot about. All the time that happens. If that person dies, does the current spouse have a shot? No. So unlike, so if you have an old will and your old will says, I leave everything to my spouse and that person is no longer a spouse when you die, the law takes care of that. The law says your, your ex, ex ex-wife, ex-husband is, is treated as if they died before you. But that is not the law for beneficiary designations. So if you wrote an ex-spouse into your life insurance and you never changed it, that ex-spouse gets all that policy no matter what. What if I don't list anybody on it? Well, I don't have that. I, I mean, I'm, if I recall, I can't even open an account for somebody without making sure they list someone. That's Not right. that I would ever let them do it, but if it falls between the cracks, but what if they list someone and they die? What happens then? It, does it go to that dead person's estate? It does. It does. And, and that's that, probably not what they want. That's probably not what they want. So basically what that means in, in layman's terms is if I put, if I put, you know, a beneficiary one on my policy, let's say I, I name my son who I don't really have, but let's for, for argument's sake, I have a son. I name my son and he dies before me. It goes to his estate, which means there has to be a, a, a wills court proceeding, a probate proceeding from my son's estate that says who is the rightful owners of his property. So whoever that is, let's say my son had a will that named his wife as the person who gets everything. Then after that proceeding goes on, whatever I left for my son would actually go to his wife, which is not my grandkids or not my family members. So there's a lot of like, you know, uncommon situations that can occur if beneficiary designations are not kept up with. One of the, one of the common questions I get, well, not common, but it it happens enough is, you know, uh, I don't like my daughter's in law, you know? Uh, So I have two boys and I want to leave everything 50 50, but if one of them dies, I want a hundred percent to go to the surviving son I don't want my daughter-in-law to get anything. I'm, I'm not That's saying, very common. Right? Very, so very common. How? what do they need to do to make that happen? Sure, that's a great question. So in order to make that happen, if there are grandchildren involved, they'd have to have a trust that doesn't name the, the, the mother of the children, or in this scenario, as the person in charge. So if you leave, so let's say, you know, you in the scenario you set forth, there's a, a grandparent and then a, a uh, well, there's a there's a, a person who died, and then their son, and and then a spouse that they don't like. By by law, the surviving spouse wouldn't be entitled to your your predeceased child's share, but if you left it to your your grandchildren, essentially, then without leaving a trust, then the the surviving parent would be in charge of that money. Does that by make default, sense? So by default, if you leave money to a grandchild who's under eighteen the parent is the default 
the default uh, person in charge of that money. Okay. So that would be the scenario where the 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 daughter-in-law would end up getting the money essentially in their control. The way to avoid that is, you know, to to set forth a plan that says you can write in your plan that if one of my children predeceases me, all the money goes to my surviving child, and you can cut out your grandkids or whoever's down the line. Or we can do a trust plan. That is also another way you can say, well, I do want it to go to my grandkids, but I want somebody else to be in charge of that money. And usually we write in the plans that you know we intend for the money to be kept in the line of consanguinity somebody who's related by blood only and i should say that by law the the daughters-in-law or sons-in-law are not entitled to a single bit of any inheritance the the issue comes up where if i give money to a son or daughter and they put it in a joint marital account that's suddenly under the law treated as a marital account for any divorce proceedings or anything else if i keep it in a separate account that's only in my name then it is considered only that my child's property and so that's sometimes another you know reason to put it in trust is because if if I leave it for my son or daughter and I want my son or daughter to be in control of their own money, but I don't want a daughter or son-in-law to be able to get it. If it's in a trust account, your son or daughter can say, hey, it's left in a trust account. I don't, I can't put you on it, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of takes away that argument that a spouse might make that says, hey, well, you just got this inheritance. I want my piece. Yeah, and it's a good defense, right? It's I a mean, good defense. That's uh, right. It, and, and it's not so much we're saying people are nefarious, but money does corrupt and infighting happens. It's so much easier when you have directives written and there's a trust and there's a third party and it just eliminates a lot of the fighting uh, for sure. Absolutely. Third parties are always a great way to avoid fighting. And I just had a scenario, Dan, come in my office where my client left has given during life during his life a hundred million dollars to each of his children. And there's a daughter-in-law that wow. still wants more money. And so the whole goal now is to create an estate plan that can't be set aside because he's not leaving more money. It's all going to, you know, charitable benefactors. But there's there's all kinds of, you know, concern that I see routinely in my office about sons and daughters-in-laws maybe being too greedy. So that's another, you know, thought of if it's in trust, then your your child can easily say, hey, I don't really have control of this. It's governed by this trust. And so you don't, you know, I can't make it yours. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, but uh, that's, a, that's a big example, but a <clears throat> hundred million is a lot of money, but a hundred thousand could be a significant sum to a different couple. You know, it doesn't matter. Oh, no, no, but it doesn't matter the cost. It, it, it could be 50,000. It could be, it could be 5,000. If you want it to go to your kid and you don't want it to go to a spouse, that's, you know, that's something to consider because if your child, and this is another thing about beneficiary designations, if you beneficiary designate your children, they get the money outright without any strings attached. And you may want that for your children, but that also opens up the possibility that it's going to be taken by a spouse and things like that. So a trust can have restrictions in it and a beneficiary designation cannot. So even for um, clients who do want their children to have 100% access with no strings attached, sometimes I'll do a trust only for the reason that I can creditor protect it as well and predator protect it. Right. It's a little bit of a, of, a, of a good mechanism. There are situations where I recommend just having a will because it's easier. Right. And, and you can just name beneficiaries and there's nothing too complex. Right. They don't have a lot of needs. Right. They don't have a lot of restrictions. They won't want a rule from the grave, a beneficiary. Right. 
designation is all you need. That's right. And, and sometimes when, when a couple comes in and they have one son or daughter and that's all who they're providing for, a simple will will usually be just fine because we can beneficiary designate the accounts. And this is where you would proactively use beneficiary designations. You can beneficiary designate or, or you know, designate on your bank account a transfer on death designee, somebody who gets the account when you die. And you can go through asset by asset and make sure your, your son or daughter is on the deed and you can make sure they're on your account and basically we can avoid probate and provide for the beneficiary using proactively joint accounts deeds and beneficiary designations what about stuff that can't be named as a beneficiary jewelry um you know just cash stuff that you have in the house possessions what do you do in that case if you if you would like to name a beneficiary do you need to create a trust for those that's a great question so Typically what happens, although it's not necessarily exactly what's supposed to happen, is that the, 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 the children or whomever is surviving takes and divides up the property outside of any court proceeding and outside of any trust proceeding. They just run to the they house, just run divvy to the it house, up. Divvy it up. And this is where a lot of will and trust arguments come, come into effect. But the reality is the courts don't like dealing with per personal property complaints because it's very difficult to determine who like what property was owned at the time of death unless somebody did an inventory right before mom or dad died. So there's arguments, oh, there was a ring here, oh, there wasn't. And it's very, very difficult to prove. But if you have a trust, we can assign all of the tangible personal property to the trust so that it goes through the same proceeding. But there's also with a will, at least at my firm, we always provide a form. It's called a, a, a personal property memorandum or something of the tangible personal property memorandum. P personal property under the law is anything you can pick up or anything that you can basically see like a car. Um, but it's not things like bonds, stocks, IRAs, those you can't see and, mm -hmm. and pick up. But your personal property inside your home, your furniture, your clothes, jewelry. We provide with your will and trust plan a personal property memorandum and you basically handwrite who you want to get specific items in your house. And that form goes with the copy of your estate plan. You can update it anytime without your lawyer and just provide your lawyer a copy. And you can say, I want this face to go to child one. I want this piece of you know jewelry to go to child two. And that's supposed to be honored at the time that you pass away. Is that enforceable? Is that something? It is enforceable. Okay. I mean, obviously you're going to have people, you know, getting there and taking and saying, I know, never Ransacking, was there, yes. but, um, at least you have some recourse. That would be the best That's way right. to do it. Mm -hmm. Now this might seem like an off the wall question, but I get it so much times that it's no longer off the wall. Um, kind of related. Uh, I have a lot of clients ask me, do I need, if I write a will and I have one child that I really don't want to leave anything to, do I have to name them and give them a dollar or else I'm opening a loophole for them to get something. That's an amazing question. I get this all the time as well. And un unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, almost every family that I've had, I would say, well, I wouldn't say every, I would say 65 to 75% of the families cut out somebody. Mm. The, so how do you do it? How, how do you, do you do it? Out? So you never have to leave somebody any money if you don't want to, other than your spouse, but that's a very long, complicated legal answer. Uh, but you don't have to leave any children anything in your will if you do not want to. The way to cut them out efficiently is to specifically name that they are your son or daughter, but that you wish to leave them nothing by will and you specifically disinherit them. Okay. All right. So the idea, 
they said uh, most people say you have to leave them a dollar, but you that's do just not. It's more of as a reminder to make sure you at least name them. You have to. Well, you don't have to, but to, to ward off a potential will contest, you would want to say in there, "This is my son or daughter," but I wish to leave them nothing, or you know, they're not considered my son or daughter for purposes of anything in this will, something like that, because it shows that. You didn't make an inadvertent mistake by not naming them, which is the argument that would be made is, oh, they forgot me. They didn't mean to forget me, but they did. No, we can write in there. A lot of people don't want to write exactly why, but in a will contest, the lawyer is the primary witness in a will contest because that's the person who wrote the documents with the mom or, or, or dad. So what we would have in our notes basically would say the reasons and that way if there was ever a contest that says well I know they said they didn't want to name me but that was a mistake the lawyer would be able to testify no mom or dad disinclude you for these reasons got it now I want to wrap up but before I go I want to ask this other question which is very common it has to do with people moving to Florida so they might have children all over the map they're in Florida they may have created a, a trust or a will in another state before they moved. What do they need to do to make sure that it's honored in Florida? That's a great question. So the 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 main lawyer answer I hear is you have to redo all of your documents. That's that's what I hear too. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, and, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt you and no, throw you under okay. the bus. No, but the fine. most people say immediately they're just saying that because they want money from me. The uh, lawyer. Right? I I I completely understand, and the reality is. It is in a way that because the truth is you, your will or trust from New York or New Jersey or Ohio may be perfectly fine. The true answer is that if the will, trust or document was executed perfectly in the other state, meaning that it complied with the other state's law exactly on how you're supposed to sign it into effect, it is effective in Florida. One of the wrinkles that comes up often is that not all states require you to have two independent witnesses and an and a notary, three different people that are not the person signing the will as their own to have the will take effect. If they do not have what's called a self-proving affidavit at the back of that will, which is something Florida law, we advise under Florida law, then we have to find and locate the witnesses that signed that will. So that's where a wrinkle comes up. And this is why attorneys generally just say, oh, redo your documents. Mm -hmm. Yes, they want your money. But there are situations where if they don't have that affidavit at the back of the will or trust, it may be impossible to find the people that signed your will into effect 20 years ago when you did it in New York or Ohio or New Jersey. I'm just listing random right, states right. that I see often. Right. But it may be the case that, you know, OK, you have it. Yeah, it, it's it's fine as written. But, you know, when it needs to take effect, we may not be able to find that witness if they don't have that that particular formality in that state. If that happens and we can't locate them, the whole entire will gets thrown in the trash, like I said earlier. And the, the law of Florida tells, you know, basically governs who gets your property. We never want to be in a situation where we advise the client, oh, yeah, it's fine. And then the property, their whole will gets thrown in the trash, which yeah. is why attorneys <laughs> yeah. basically say in an abundance of caution. Yes. And lawyers are very risk averse. They don't want to be telling you something that's wrong. That's the real answer, Dan. OK, that's good. That's a good answer. Um, I'm going to tease. We're going to have you come back in the future. I think we're going to talk some more about taxes because I think that's a whole nother world that we should talk about. And I want to tease it with a quick question. Maybe you can answer if you have a, a trust that you wrote up in New Jersey and you move down here and die, do you have to pay New Jersey taxes and who, who administers that trust 
upon death? That's a great question. So if you do have an old trust and it's from another state and that state has inheritance taxes, that state's division of uh, I, I forget, like their treasury division can basically come after you for paying those taxes. If they first know about it, if you still have property in that state mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, some of the most more aggressive states that we see are New York and California. They are really aggressive about coming after people that they can argue still are residents of their state. Gotcha. So residency is not ironclad like, well, I have my driver's license in Florida, so I'm a Floridian. It's actually a confluence of different things. They look at where you're registered to vote, where you own property. Let's say your bank accounts are still ones that you opened up in another state like New Jersey. You know, they can argue if their their division of treasury, um, you know, can argue and make an argument that you still live there and that you're still a resident there. They can also make an argument to get paid. So if you do have a trust and you move to Florida, make sure you change the address of the trust That's to right. Florida. That's so right. it doesn't add that controversy because we do love our state income tax here. Uh, yes, yeah, zero. <laughs> well, thanks again, Debbie, for coming in and talking to us. This You're has welcome. been great. We talked about naming beneficiaries, the importance of it, and how they interact with wills and supersede wills. So if you're listening to the show and you haven't checked your beneficiary documents, please go ahead and do so and make sure they're accurate. Thanks, Debbie, and we'll catch you next time. And thanks, listeners. If you have any questions you have for Debbie or I, send us an email, and we will get it answered on our next show with Asking a Lawyer. Thank you. The topics on this show are wide-ranging, yet relevant to people approaching or living in retirement, like me. If there is a topic you want to hear on the show, head to dolphinfinancialgroup.com and contact Dan to request your topic or to share your opinion. Dan Mundell or Dolphin Financial Group are not affiliated or endorsed by Social Security or any government agency. Everything discussed on today's show was for informational purpose only. Since everyone's situation is different, some things may not apply to you. The materials presented are believed to be from reliable sources. We cannot be 100% certain that they are accurate. You should really talk to my dad or someone from Dolphin Financial Group before trying to implement these ideas or strategies.